It's time for episode 78 of Love That Album. Last time around on the podcast, Morris and Jeff Jenkins discussed the history surrounding the release of Skyhook's second album, Ego Is Not A Dirty Word, from 1975. For part two of the Skyhook specials, Morris is joined by Michael Persh and Reese Lett to discuss the actual songs on the album. Michael's own podcast, Sitting In A Bar In Adelaide, is also named after the Hook song, so it's apparent he's a dedicated fan. Reese runs the Eastern Suburbs School of Music in Melbourne and puts out regular videos on YouTube on how to play Skyhook's tunes on guitar, so his dedication to the Hooks is also bona fide. Together, they will discuss composition techniques, how Ego differs from their debut album, Living in the 70s, what role Ross Wilson had in their sound as producer, and much more. Reese will even play examples of the guitar styles of Red Simons and Bongo Starkey on the guitar for you music theory heads out there. Eric Reanimated returns for another Album I Love segment to discuss what some regard is the best album by Blue Oyster Cult in 1974's Secret Treaties. It's another great segment from Eric, but it could use more cowbell. So hang on to your ego, sit down with your married friends and dig the show. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? there. Welcome to episode 78 of Love That Album podcast. My name is Morris. Thank you very much for joining us. If you caught episode 77 earlier on this month, you'd know that I've declared this month to be Skyhooks month because it is 40 years since the release, since the anniversary of the release of Skyhooks second album, Ego Is Not A Dirty Word. 40 years! I can't believe it. I feel so old. But I have two more devoted than you realize Skyhooks fans on the other end of a Skype connection. I'll introduce them one by one. First of all, the host of the Skyhooks named podcast, sitting in a bar in Adelaide, Mr. Michael Persh. Welcome back. I might hate him. I'm beginning to think you've been on the show that many times that I think we ought to just sort of declare you like a permanent partnership or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, just send those checks. Yeah, the checks in the mail. And uh, making his second appearance on Love That Album, he came on late last year to discuss, funny enough, another second album, this one by Jellyfish, talking about spilt milk. Mr. Reese Lett, the entrepreneur, the the head honcho <laughs> at the Eastern Suburbs School of Music and hardworking musician. Good morning, Reese. Good morning, lads. How are we doing uh, this 
early Saturday morning or Sunday morning. Sunday morning. Maybe 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 Saturday night. <laughs> still going for some of us. <laughs> oh my god! I, I should point out to the listenership that Reese is recording this podcast on I think about not even four hours sleep. He's a working musician. Did two gigs last night. Didn't get into bed until about twenty to four, and it's now uh, well, you know, it's eight thirty local time. So you know, after you're sort of like reliving the gigs in your head, I imagine Reese. Yeah, that's it. We don't give trade secrets away too much, though. So. Oh, sorry, sorry. You'll have to, you'll have to kill me. Oh God, just as well we're just as well we're on the other side of Melbourne. It's all in the name of rock and roll, isn't it? <laughs> but we like it. That's it. So yeah, so um, as I said, we're all here to talk about "Ego Is Not a Dirty Word" by Skyhooks, which was released forty years ago, nineteen seventy-five. It's it's hard to believe for uh, Michael and myself, but you're a youngin. Reese, so we'll uh, be getting your thoughts oh, uh, very, very shortly. And a little bit of housekeeping here. We'll be having as well in a minute or two. I'll be playing the Album I Love segment by Eric Reanimator. If you're new to the show, Eric does a segment every episode pretty much just to give a little bit, you know, talk about an album that he digs. Uh, and it's usually something thematically related to the album that's under big discussion. And this time around, he's gone for an album which I imagine. Imagine you'd be a fan of Michael Persh. He's going to be talking about the Blue Oyster Cult's third album, Secret Treaties. I am a big uh, Blue Oyster Cult fan, mate. And I, I was speaking to a friend of mine in the States not that long ago, and he uh, he said that when he discovered Skyhooks, he thought that they sounded very much like Blue Oyster Cult, which never dawned on me. But when you actually go back and, and sort of look at how they structured their tunes, there's a lot of similarities there. So, um, yeah, interesting comparison. Well, there you go. So your mate's not the only one. Eric also thought the same thing, so there must be something in it. All right, so what we'll do is we'll have a quick break and listen to Eric's segment after the break, and then we'll go on and discuss Ego is Not a Dirty Word by Skyhooks. And actually, sorry, before we go to the break, sorry, now that I think of it, I want to give a big shout-out to the Facebook group, the Skyhooks Fan Club group, because I went and put up a post a few weeks ago about the first of these two episodes, the, my discussion with Jeff Jenkins, which was covering something of the history of Skyhooks and the history of this album. And I really got a lot of lovely encouragement from uh, the members of that group. Thank you so much for climbing on board and hope you enjoyed the podcast. And uh, thank you very much for your encouraging words. I really appreciate it. So uh, anyway, enough of that. Uh, time to go to a break and to have a listen to Eric. And we'll be back in a few minutes to talk about Skyhooks. You're listening to Love That Album. We hope you're enjoying the show. You can get previous episodes at either lovethatalbum.podbean.com or lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or search for Love That Album in the iTunes store. If you want to get in contact, please email Morris at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash lovethatalbum and start a music-related discussion. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. A one, two, three, Eric the Reanimator. 
Alrighty, this is Eric Raymander, and I am back once again to talk about the classic, the one, the only, Blue Oyster Cult with their 1974 third full-length studio album, Secret Treaties. Now, I'm aware that uh, ego is not a dirty word as what's been covered on the regular episode, so I wanted to pick something to talk about that was in a similar vein that, at least to me, seems to have... The, uh, the same kind of cachet, same kind of style, the same kind of sound as Skyhook's album. And I immediately went to Blue Oyster Cult. And I wanted an album from the same year, but the album they put out in 1975 was actually a live album. So, uh, Secret Treaties, there we go. Uh, this is the, f- the third of their studio albums, as I said. They had an amazing five album run. Some some people think that fifth of those albums, Spectres, isn't so great, but I actually really, really like it. But their first four albums definitely are classic. Now, Secret Treaties is not the album that most people think of when they think of classic Blue Oyster Cult albums, simply because it did not contain their biggest hits. But there are so many great songs on, on this album that you'd be hard-pressed to be disappointed at the lack of a Burning For You or their most famous song, Don't Fear the Reaper. We have instead our other classic BOC songs like Career of Evil, which we opened up with, Dominance Submission, Astronomy, Harvester of Eyes, and my pick for the hidden gem of the album, ME262, which let's check out now. in submission, of course, which gave us the line Radio's Appear, which was, of course, co-opted by Radio Birdman for the title of their debut album. One of the reasons that I did come to Blue Oyster Cult as a fan was the Radio Birdman connection and just the fact that they were part of a weird middle ground between hard rock, classic rock, punk rock, garage rock, all of those things that we now talk about as being garage punk. They, They were not a typical heavy metal band. They were not a typical hard rock band. 
they covered the MC5, they were literate, they made uh, references to science fiction and beat poetry and monster movies and all of those kind of cultural touchstones that the punks would embrace along with uh, kind of a post-hippie cynicism of you know, pointing out the hypocrisy of what had been uh, preached and what was going on in the early 70s. And they also made some damn good music, and yes, it is under the heading of what some people refer to as boogie rock, but to me that just means that they were able to shake out a beat or a feel for the music rather than some kind of thundering, plotting, you know, doom like others did, and some did it well. But I think for me, at the end of the day, what's special about Blue Oyster Cult is they were the other band besides Motorhead that punks would listen to that would also be listened to by metalheads. They were also a band that could do the punchy rock and roll, uh, like some of the stuff we heard earlier, but and then some of the boogie swagger. But they also were able to do kind of epic swinging classic rock songs. And uh, in the tradition of punk rock, we're going to have a little shorter of a segment this time around. And we're going to leave with a little bit of what might be their greatest epic song of the uh, 1970s, at least. This is Astronomy. This has been Eric Reanimator. You guys all enjoy yourself, and we'll catch you next time.
When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. Rock fans, you're tuned to 3FQ, the friendly one, and I'm going to take you right through until 12 o'clock this evening when the Allentine fun machine will be taking you nowhere. Don't forget, girls, you can get all your cosmetics and feminine things from Hood & Co. Pharmacy, 25 Langtree Avenue, Mildura. Even Granny tunes her little tranny to 3FQ. And we're back. Thank you for listening. This is episode 78 of Love That Album. I have Michael Persh and Reese Lett on the other end of a Skype connection. If it holds up, we've been having all sorts of difficulties, I don't know. Anyway, but uh, never mind those technicalities. Thank you both gentlemen for uh, being up so early on a Sunday morning to discuss Ego is Not a Dirty Word. So in episode 77, I was joined by Jeff Jenkins, a music journalist, and we discussed the backstory of Skyhooks and the circumstances between the recording of Living in the 70s, their debut album, and Ego is Not a Dirty Word, the band dynamics, uh, their non-success in America, Greg and Red's intellectual approach to the music versus Sherl's more earthy approach, and in this show, I want us to focus more on the actual album and the songs themselves and the production. So I'll start off with you, Michael. Now, you've named your podcast Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, which is the name of a Skyhook song, and you've collected much paraphernalia, and we all know that they loom large in your life. So the questions I have for you are, do you recall the first emotions that you felt when Ego was released and you know how did you listen to it you know go start to finish or did you play multiple times each song repeated multiple times before you went on to the next one and what was your initial impression of the album did it match up living in the 70s or did it surpass it did it disappoint what were your initial thoughts yeah absolutely and i just want to quickly say how much i enjoyed your show with jeff he really is uh, an interesting character and a, a very nice guy a very knowledgeable guy i really did enjoy that well, I firstly remember when the single was released, and and the, and the weird thing about Skyhooks in Adelaide, at Skyhooks actually sold more records per capita in Adelaide than they did in Melbourne, which is quite amazing. Um, but having said that, I, I distinctly remember when the single was released. The, the local radio station, and I'm talking AM radio back in those days, the, the equivalent in Adelaide of 3XY was 5KA, and they played the single... Uh, from mid-afternoon till midnight every hour and they got people to ring in and, and, and you know say if they liked it or didn't like it and so you know that was how much airplay the single got mm. uh, but the album I remember I remember the album and I didn't have a turntable back then and I was only probably 13 and I, I distinctly remember being admitted to hospital to have my appendix out oh my lord and, uh, and my mum I had a, an old 
old-fashioned cassette player and the, that same day she bought me a cassette copy of the album so I listened to it non-stop in a hospital room <laughs> so so what, what were your initial thoughts I mean when you heard the album did you think this is equally as good as living in the 70s or did it disappoint you or what were no, your initial thoughts I, th- I thought it was was on a, on a par because, and I guess because in, in hindsight you know as you grow up and, and sort of listen to the lyrics of living in the 70s and some of the themes of the tunes maybe they're a bit more interesting maybe yeah at that time again I was so young so I, I just loved the band so much that this was just I couldn't get enough so I just flogged it mercilessly but when you when you actually think I guess maybe a third to a half of the tunes were demoed before Shirley was even in the band and there's a lot of Steve Hill demos kicking around of these songs so when you when you think about them in historical context they're not actually that far removed from living in the 70s but the album is very different isn't it well that's something I was going to bring up in a couple of minutes about whether this album really does seem very different I know that lyrically it doesn't make and Jeff made this as a very good point uh, lyrically uh, these songs they don't they're not sort of being geographic specific maybe with you know the exception of uh, Mercedes ladies album was very much a Melbourne album, you know, with songs like, you know, Baldwin Calling and Carlton Like on Street Limbo, but uh, this album is, you know, more, still, it is very Australian in its outlook and very cheeky and taking the piss, but it's not geographic like that first one was. Mm-hmm. And, and see, that was sort of lost to me because I was so young, it's only, it was only in later years that all these these places in Melbourne, Carlton and, and Baldwin came to be sort of, you know, in a, and I've spoken to Greg about this, it's in a similar way that he sort of looked at Memphis or, 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 or London or something. But for me growing up in Adelaide, Melbourne was this, this far off, fantastic place where all this great music came from. So it was a similar thing. Uh, so Reese, you're the baby of the trio of us. Uh, so I want to ask, when did you first become aware of the hooks and what drew you in? I mean, so obviously you weren't part of the tornado that Michael and I remember about hook mania. Next generation. Yes. Along, really. So, so did, did um, you have like an older brother or sister who, um, whose records you went through or how did you discover Skyhooks? No, so I'm the oldest in the family, um, okay. but I, I think my whole life I've known of Skyhooks and um, just thinking about it recently, it was probably because of Cheryl's Neighbourhood. Um, okay, yep. So yep. I was I born in 78, so the perfect age almost for that, that show and just knew that was Shirley from Skyhooks. And then following up from that, clearly remember that the... Reformation concert being broadcast on Hey Hey, um, and that's Hey Hey It's Saturday for the international viewers, which was a, a, a big show uh, throughout the, the 70s and 80s. Uh, on a started out as a Saturday morning show and then to a Saturday night, and they'd, they'd broadcast a lot of concerts during the show itself. Um, and I think that's one of the first things we recorded on our, our brand new VHS machine uh, at the time. And was devastated when mum and dad taped over it because we only had three or four blank cassettes. So uh, that's what you had to do to to get the shows that you wanted. 
<laughs> yeah, th- thanks to YouTube, I've been able to, to, to chase down the footage that, that was shot and shown on Hey Hey, um, and apparently there is a full copy of the concert out there floating around, so hopefully one day I'll get my hands on that. That's fantastic. Well, I, I actually dragged my, well, she wasn't my wife at the time, but I actually dragged my now wife on a bus to come over to that concert, and by the time we got sort of 20 minutes into the journey, there was champagne flowing on the bus and people losing oh, their lunch and it was ugly and my wife still <laughs> complains that I dragged her in. <laughs> oh boy. But she still married you though. Yeah, well, that's right. She, yeah, but it's part of her ammunition when she wants something. <laughs> Which I think was was that the the second go round of the, the Reformation because they, they did some 83 shows and then yeah, that, was, that would that, have been 84, wasn't it? Yeah, that was just a, a one-off at... Um, and it was a huge lineup because it had Australian Crawl and the, and the Uncanny X Men. Right. It was an all day thing at, at Olympic Park. It was absolutely huge. I just remember Skyhooks were on telly and I was right into them. Funnily enough, though, never had uh, access to them in, in Dad's vinyl collection or anything like that. It probably wasn't until uh, I think grade five birthday so it would have been 11th birthday when when latest and greatest came out and i got that on cassette for my birthday and played the hell out of that so was that the one that got released with the missing album or was that no that that came a lot later that was um just the jukebox in siberia single right that was enormous that's all Mm it was so is it correct if i'm wrong morris but is, was Ego Not A Dirty Word the first vinyl you ever purchased? No, it was not the first vinyl I ever purchased. In fact, I didn't purchase it. I, my best friend, he, he, it was, I think it was close to my birthday or something, and he said, right, what album do you want? And I said, I want that. And so that's what he got me. Actually, it was, it was a choice between Ego Is Not A Dirty Word and uh, Not Fragile by Backman Turner Overdrive. And I, I think I got the better <laughs> end of the deal when, in the end, he got me... Uh, Ego's not a dirty word. <laughs> oh, that's, that, that BTO album's still a good album. Yeah, it is. It is a great album, but I think I'm quite happy with having my copy of Ego's Not a Dirty Word. Reese, so eventually, so you went through the whole thing, you know, Shell's Neighbourhood and presumably, you know, watching Smart Ass Red on Hey Hey at Saturday and... Uh, yes. Way to the yeah. Hook. Wow. Uh, yes, and from there, just eventually, thanks to the CD age, just collected the, the catalogue that... Probably when uh, Mushroom 25 and they, they re-released as much of the catalogue as they could on CD, uh, I think I, I grabbed the whole thing all at once, um, pretty much. And yeah, it, it very close, if not my favourite album out of the, their, their back catalogue. Interesting. Wow. Which, okay. which they've remastered and, and reissued um, Living in the 70s, but those the rest of the CDs were just straight as they were on the LP. So, you know, it would be fantastic if they remixed and remastered the rest of them. David Lang, who put out those compilations last few years a boogie and silver roads also went and put out i think last year or late last year the jojo zep and the falcon screaming targets album and a couple of the early sports albums as well with hundreds of bonus tracks beautifully remastered excellent liner notes and i'm thinking why the hell isn't this happening for the skyhooks catalog you know certainly the first couple but i think they all warrant it mm, yeah it's, um, i'm not sure why they did living in the 70s i think for maybe the 30th anniversary but yeah, yeah i'm not sure why they stopped only one bonus track i think that might have been uh, was it gin bottle baby
Yeah, yeah, the B-side. Yeah, the B-side. Yeah. But it, I'm sure there'd be a lot of live stuff and radio stuff floating around that they could put onto it. At least put out something with a decent liner notes, a, a decent booklet. Yeah, true. It's, it's fascinating because, okay, you've already gone and said that this was one of your favourite albums in their back catalogue, or possibly the very favourite. And yep. it's unusual because the history of rock and roll is littered with bands who second album... You know, they had, as they always say, they had years to create the first one and months to create the second one. But, you know, as you've already also pointed out, Michael, that most of these songs were already written. But I'll sort of make the point that there are probably a couple in there that I imagine that were written post-recording uh, of uh, Living in the 70s. They certainly were not going to be one of these one-trick pony albums. Jeff said in the previous show, Greg McCainch didn't go down the path very much this time of quoting, you know, Melbourne Place names, yet it's still a very Australian-sounding album. McCainch and Sherl may have been, you know, very different people, yet, I don't know, I get the impression that Greg, certainly after Steve Hill left, and maybe he was thinking about Steve Hill while he was writing those early songs, he sounded like he was writing specifically for the singer. He's like, well, you know, in this case, specifically for Shell, it pretty much in the same way that I imagine Don Walker sounds like he was writing specifically for Jim Barnes in Cold Chisel. You know, it might not necessarily be something always that he would have sung, but he knew that it would have sounded perfect coming out of Shell's mouth. Well, certainly Shell's amazing ability to, to play the characters and really sell the song um, with his vocal delivery. Mm. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the, the things that once again shines on this album that, that probably deteriorates or gets pulled back a fair bit on the, the following two albums. Yes. Um, and that, that little edge of humour that he, he injects into it uh, with the, the boy next door kind of charm that he has. He sells it so well on, on living in the 70s and, and this album. Mm -hmm. So the the thing that's that also comes through, especially not just specific, specifically with this album, but with Skyhooks as a band, I think I already sort of discussed with Jeff about how different they were to a lot of other Australian music at the time, because I think the early 70s were filled with either proggy sounding bands or hard rock slash boogie sounding bands. And I, I know I've seen some footage where Greg McCainch himself said that they weren't trying to be a boogie sort of band, although I guess there's a case to argue that Saturday night would have fitted in with anything else that was going down at the time. their musicianship and their approach was a long way away from, say, Billy Thorpe or Blackfeather or any of the other bands at the time. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't just doing a, a straight-out chuggy 12-bar blues, but that boogie element's definitely in there, and especially with Bongo's guitar playing as well, with him being the, the Chuck Berry-style player. But then you've got Red and Greg bringing their, their analytical approach, mm. uh, I suppose, to it. And, um, and, and Fred... Freddie on the drums, I, I tend to see him like as a, a rock drummer with jazz chops, or is he a jazz drummer with rock chops? Definitely, I see yeah, a lot like, uh, like Peter Chris from uh, the band Kiss, that they, they just had that jazz swing in them, it wasn't just that straight ahead bludgeoning like a, a John Bonham style player, like a hard rock player, mm. they, they could certainly swing. 
and, and there's a great, you know, I think the the title track is a great example of that. Where if if you listen closely, there's you know there's a lot of triangle in Freddie's playing triangle. There's lots of weird little things in there that drummers didn't do. No, uh, you're, you're right, right. Uh, and look, so let's let's talk a little bit about that title song now that you've gone and brought it up. Really admire the song because it's both smart-ass and direct. And like you know, we'll come a little bit later on to speaking about the song "Smart-ass Songwriters." Yeah, you're right. It's got these little these little touches. You know, at the end of each line, you've got that little triangle thing. And you're right. That's clever. Who else was using a triangle? in rock and it's not just not just uh, like being ironic it's, he's using it cleverly I think it's a good little bit of punctuation and, and, the, and the weird thing is he used to do it live which is <laughs> like wow, oh, wow. The, the song it's it's lyrically clever but not really so much except for I guess the one line about Leonard Cohen the, it, it's not really crouched in riddles you know, it's, I mean who knows what a fridge full of Leonard Cohen really is either of you guys no but it sounds <laughs> deep and meaningful <laughs> it does but still, there's, there's something there. And this is what I was trying to sort of allude to a few minutes ago about even though you guys were saying that a lot of the album was written while Steve Hill was in the group and certainly just, I think, after living in the 70s itself had been recorded, but you know not necessarily released. I think Ego is Not a Dirty Word sounds to me like a song that was written in the world that was Skyhook's mania because you know I, I'm sure that there were uh, as you would have seen with the Mike Willisey interview where it was you know the older generation that was saying we don't understand you we don't like you you're ruining our kids who the hell do you think you are but then there were the kids who were also sort of you know worshipping at their feet and there they were coming along and saying well you know we know we're good we know we're loved and ego really isn't a dirty word and I, I just I, it just sounds to me like a song that was written from the whirlwind that was hook mania and, and i think it's a, something that may be a bit forgotten that in know in that, that that time especially and I'm, I'm guessing melbourne was even more than adelaide there was hardly a week went by that scopes were not in the mainstream press and i'm not talking music press i'm talking you know the daily paper yes which is amazing when you think about it right you know think how many bands get australian bands get you know, regularly talked about in the paper. Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, I'm wondering what sort of came first. Was it the millions of, well, not millions, but the, the, the thousands of selling records that sort of forced them the media to talk about them thought, right, okay, this is a good selling point, or did the media jump onto them early because of, say, Double J playing them or Countdown jumping onto them and playing them? Were the media reacting or were the, the media propelling them? I, I'm thinking, I'm sure here in Adelaide it was the media chasing something that they knew would sell newspapers because, as an example, and it was, you know, Back in the old days when, when a band arrived from overseas at the airport, you know, all the little girls would go out and scream on the fence at the airport. And, and they did that for Sherbet and Skyhooks back in those days. So 
it, and I don't recall sort of any other Australian band having that happen. Yeah, I, I guess because uh, Shirl and um, Daryl Braithwaite were probably seen as the prettiest boys on the pop singer block at the time. Actually, I just and I, and you talked to um, to Jeff about this, but the the first concert I ever went to in my life was uh, Sherbet and Skyhooks were second on the bill, and I actually went to see Skyhooks and left halfway between <laughs> in the Sherbet set. <laughs> So and, and I believe they only played together twice. There's a quite a famous gig they did at the uh, the Opera House in Sydney, but this one at the Tennis Stadium at Morrill Drive in in Adelaide in March '75 was uh, maybe a forgotten show. But yeah, and and it was weird because there was a there were the audience was was really quite mixed of you know the forty somethings that could see that really liked Skyhooks and then kids. So it was you don't really see that much anymore either. No. Um, I, I was going to ask, Reese. I know you happen to have your guitar there. Was yep, this one of the do. songs that you happened to, you were able to sort of uh, break down and give a little bit of, of an analysis for our uh, listening public? Did you have yes, um, sure some? Can. Okay, so, no, sure can. so there's, there's plenty that's going on in the title song. And I mean, we also have to have enough time to talk about some of the other tunes on the album. But it's just that rhythmically, this is a very rhythmic song. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the great jazz chops that uh, Freddie shows behind the drum kit, but you've got what I, I'm presuming is Bongo, who's doing the... the da, 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 no, it's I, actually... Yeah, oh, it is Red's part. That, uh, okay. the, the reggae kind of... Yes. Yeah. Yep, and he does it... So, so, who's, so who's, doing, who's doing the uh, who's doing the riff, the motif? So that's Bongo doing the. Oh, okay, I got, I got the other one. Yep, and Red's doing because they're they're quite fiddly parts. Uh, as you said, there is a a lot production wise going on in this track. You have got the two guitars. You've got Greg doubling up the the riff. You've got that great tune percussion, the marimba and vibraphone stuff running through it. You've got the the ever present Moog synthesizer bass happening as well, as well as all the, the the percussive stuff that Michael was also talking about earlier. They orchestrate their guitar parts so well. They're very rarely doing something of the same style. So Bongo might be doing that that riff type thing. And as you were alluding to, you've got Red doing the the reggae thing the whole time yes but then when it hits that pre-chorus everyone just goes off in their own direction almost where you've got bongo doing these uh what we call sixths on the guitar though well you got red still doing a, a chord type and then a very red simon's Is working a lot of jazz chords in their their, their tunes as well because I've sat down and, and and sorted through the the whole album and and learnt all the songs. Oh, um, look look up on YouTube not only over the next couple of weeks but um, I've also got a few Skyhooks guitar tutorials up there already yes, where I've, I've done Saturday a, night. I've watched a couple of those actually. So what I'll do is when I'm posting when I'm posting the episode up to Facebook, I will be including links to uh, as many of the your tutorials that you can provide me links to. Yes, so, yes. Uh, and it's been an absolute joy sort of sitting down, learning the tunes and, and just unpicking them because they're a very composed band. Like they, they don't often do improvisations, which does separate them from that, that boogie idea where it was, you know, jam a 12-bar blues and then solo for the next 10 minutes yep. over it. Everything was, was very much composed and then performed again on the live stage as best they could 
because mm. there's there's so many parts and so many uh, harmonies as well. Yeah, and it, it's interesting you mentioned there because uh, about the um, about them being very composed. I mean, get, that would sort of explain why there's not so much in the way of wild guitar histrionics. I mean, you do get some solos here and there, but they're very measured and very well thought out. Very much so. And and Red also wasn't the, the typical blues type player where he'd just be doing chuck berry type licks yeah his solos are quite jazzy mm. well, I can, and that's an interesting point guys if you if you get this is one of the few songs that they did actually play a bit differently on stage if you go back in youtube and find the version of this from the 75 show at the palais theater that, that's all over youtube uh, at the end of the song red goes yeah, into that, this this extended great. riff and it's sensational mm. and it really it really is great and it, um they do it a yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's going into that. Yeah, I love that. And they, they very rarely did anything like that, didn't they? Yeah, true. It was very much as much as they could done by the record because there were so many parts to cover, whether it was guitar overdubs or the vocal overdubs as well, which um, I'm sure Ross Wilson had a, a lot to do with those harmony stackings, right. uh, which are all over this song as well. So this and, is a, and, this is a good opportunity for both the band. I mean, the band were you know with living in the seventies, they were starting out, and they had the luxury of getting uh, one of the most famous, uh, already. I mean, legendary is probably too big a word to use, but certainly you know, a highly respected man in Ross Wilson. You know, already having been through God knows how many bands, but most famously Daddy Cool to that point. Now listen. Turn around once and we do the eagle run. probably going to be something let's go hell for leather yeah we've got michael gudinski behind us we're going to you know take this label the mushroom label somewhere let's just really make the best of it that we can and uh see that we can come up with a record as good as anything mm. and and i just i just want to quickly go back morris because the and mentioned peter jones because um reese mentioned the marimba and stuff on the album and and this tune and peter jones i don't do you remember mckenzie theory I remember the name. I, I, don't think were, I, ever, I don't think I ever heard them. This Peter Jones was in McKenzie Theory, which is a, a band back sort of in the early Mushroom days, sort of 72, 73. Mm. And, and there's a lot of, he did a lot of sessions for, for Mushroom Records, ad, as did other guys on this album. So uh, it's really interesting how much they made the sound of this album. And, and especially on, on the tours that they did promoting Ego, they didn't use any other musicians. And, and on, um, you know, on subsequent tours, they they always had a a keyboard player. But uh, there's a lot of that great stuff happening on the album. Mm, mm. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the overall theme of the album. Now, I've already gone and said that you know that this album was less about place names and less about geography. And I guess in some ways, this album was a little bit more introspective than living in the 70s i mean obviously there was still some of the piss take and there was still you know that cheeky skyhook sound but it's not always like it's been a main focus on uh, on this album you get some songs like uh, love's not good enough all my friends are getting married well all my friends are
and I'd even possibly argue the case that in its own smart-ass way that ego is not a dirty word the title track are different to the sort of um, uh, observational songs elsewhere on the album or on living in the 70s and you know like for a band that had attracted a lot of public attention with teenagers Greg McCainch was pursuing some themes on this album that were probably not going to necessarily resonate with younger people and would probably resonate more with people of their own age. I mean, it seemed like a good chunk of their audience was, uh, as you see in those that live concert footage, were the young teenage girls and uh, you know teenage guys, I guess. But it's it's a bit of a way between you just like me because I'm good in bed to all my friends are getting married. Yet it could conceivably be the same character singing both songs if the Skyhook's back catalogue was made into uh, one of those jukebox musicals, but at different ends of the show. So, you know, your thoughts, do you sort of, I, I think Michael, you already alluded to earlier on that uh, you think the albums are very different. And I guess maybe, was that the sort of thing that you were sort of pointing out? Was it more musically different that you think they were or because or lyrically that they were appro- uh, approaching uh, the themes on the albums uh, quite differently. I think both, mate, but I think lyrically it only really sunk into me as I got older. But And, and although there's a lot of production happening on Living in the 70s, and I've, I've heard the guys talk about this in other, you know, in times since that they, uh, you know, they've been criticised that this album was very much overproduced, but it's, you know, and there is a lot going on. But yeah, I guess, I guess Skyhook's had a, a really uncanny knack of taking a song, even if it was an old song, and it and it suddenly became relevant. I know you talked with Jeff about um, when All My Friends Were Getting Married was released. It just happened to be when Shirley got married. That's right. And yeah. and, and ego is not a dirty word. I, I can't, I, it might have been Gough Whitlam actually used the word in Parliament, and it was in the paper, this word that no one had ever heard of. It just, it just happened like that. And it's like Love on the Radio was an, an old song as well. But when this came out, it was a time when the likes of 3XY in 5K in Adelaide and 2SM in Sydney had so much power. And, it, and, it, and it, again, that was spoken a lot about in the media. So it's almost like it was just life imitating art. It was very weird. I think it's still, it's almost the, the eavesdropping on the older brother or sister group of friends in conversation type thing is is still there even though the the lyrics might be at a a slightly more matured angle than than what living in the 70s was Mm, mm. um you've still got that that sense of of uh touching on topics that probably weren't discussed in the home openly uh hence the fact they were they were in the paper all the time just that that uh freak attitude that would would sell a paper or oh that's that's a bit interesting and, and different when you've got things like other side and and uh, the like being discussed, yeah, it, it just sort of befuddles me a bit that a song like "All My Friends Are Getting Married" was a single. And I mean, that's you, you were saying before, Michael, about having a triangle. And ego is not a dirty word. I mean, this has it has a xylophone, or a, it's, it's not quite a vibraphone, but it sounds more like a kid's toy xylophone. But it's played, you know, really like it's. You've been or, or by saying that it, these songs are very deliberately arranged and it just sounds perfectly in place it just sounds like a great matter of inspiration i wonder whether the band came up with that or that was ross wilson's inspiration it just sounds beautiful yeah again i, th- I think it's got a lot to do with the, the session musos they pulled in like peter jones plays piano on that tune and he really has got a great sound it's it's and it just feels like he's been in the band forever and as an example you know again cole Laughlin from airs rock who's one of my favorite players 
plays uh, plays a saxophone on this album on on Smaller Songwriters. So they pulled a lot of Mushroom Records guys from different bands in to do sessions, which you know I, I don't know how how common that was back in those days. Mm. And yet it still very much has the Skyhook sound, which is you know, possibly uh, Ross Wilson sort of um, making sure that it all has that it all keeps uh, thematically very related. And it, regardless of how many session musicians that they have, it all still sounds very much like it is the band. It doesn't sound out of place. No, it's oh. down to, to Greg's writing too. I think it's right. It's so different to what what everyone else was doing at the time, mm, mm. and that that's not not just in Australia as as well. I, I think internationally, you know, there, there was no other band like them around. It was all very hard rock, getting popular in the states with, with Kiss and Zeppelin. Mentioned Blue Oyster Cold earlier. That that's probably the the closest I would think too, because Blue Oyster Cold had that intellectual side about them mm. um, that set them apart from other hard rock acts. I think as well. I'll ask you a question here because okay, on, if you go onto I think Wikipedia, it defines Skyhooks as a glam band. Now this might not you know even be an important point considering you know how often we get bands who say that you know they don't like to classify themselves under any particular genre. But were Skyhooks a glam rock band? I mean my gut instinct is to say no, but you know like T Rex or David Bowie or the Sweet, you know the Hooks like to dress up. So you know is the definition of glam how you dress you know is it being about being theatrical or is it about uh, having ambiguous sexual politics or, or, or what I mean they, they still they were lads or, or, or at least you know Shirley sang like a like a lad like a larrikin he had more in common I guess with someone like Roger Daltrey in his delivery and in yeah, very being much so. cheeky but but the music it, it's not approaching the sort of territory of the sort of things that David Bowie was doing at the time so that's that's my feeling but I don't know is is glam a correct title for the band or because you're gone and saying that they, they weren't doing anything like what anyone else was doing so Reese, you first do you, do you think that would, there was anything in what they did approaching glam image wise music wise Bowie very different to someone like T-Rex mm. um, so I don't know if you can just define the what the glam sound was I mean would you even count Slade as being a glam band because they were, they were quite hard rock mm. in their riff writing and, and vocals um, I suppose musically Slade uh, is certainly the the vocal sound it'd be the the closest I think to to Cheryl's sound uh, at the time um, but yeah, the, the glam bands were, were sort of doing that boogie thing as well, just a bit lighter than everyone else. But I think that there was a, a lot of scope in the, the music that was coming out of, of that particular style and genre anyway. Mm. Not like the 80s glam scene where it was very, very much um, cookie cutter type stuff. Right. Michael? Yeah, I think, mate, I think that the, like the English music press just sort of anyone that looked a bit, that didn't wear jeans and a, a T-shirt on stage, they, they thought of threw them into that category. But, you, you know, those bands you mentioned, like The Sweet and T-Rex, although the the little screaming girls love them, when you listen, and I loved all those bands too, but, but I loved them because they were great players. Like when you listen yes. to The Sweet, what great guitar player, Andy Scott, and, and Mick Tucker was just an awesome drummer, and Mark Boland, what a, you know. So that's sort of the comparison, I, I think, with Skyhooks. That's where that crossover happened, where, you know, the screaming girlies loved them, but musically they were so far above, you know, the pop 
grand rubbish that was around at the time. I think in a way that's a, a good segue to um, a, a, one of the songs I wanted to talk about and I already alluded to because I can't imagine any of the bands that sort of did fall under the glam moniker to have written a song or performed a song like Smart Ass Songwriters. Jeff and I had a, a bit of a brief discussion about it, but I think it sort of bears, you know, repeating and, and getting your thoughts about it. Uh, so, you know, McCainch had, there's something of an irony about this song being on the album because, you know, McCainch and Red Simons especially were both smart-ass songwriters uh, coming up with, coming, you know, clever lyrics, but also having a bit of a dig at the establishment, but doing it in a very articulate and very clever way. And yet, on this song, Greg is singing, well, sorry, Greg is writing and Cheryl is singing, not ironically in the least, though, about all the songwriters out there who are trying to write things that are lyrically deep and why don't you just shut up and get down and have a bit of a boogie? And once again, from a band that didn't see themselves as a boogie band. Uh, I'm guessing... It might have been, um, yeah, the, the, the whole get up on stage and, and jam or, or do the Yes style sweeping epic yes um which might have been the 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 popular things at the time but but yeah certainly he he was a smart ass songwriter (laughs) like you (laughs) you can't come up with the kind of things that um i've been sitting down and and figuring out and not put yourself in that category because he'd use jazz chords he wouldn't just use your your straight out majors and minors He'd, he'd go into the 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 sevenths as well going that step beyond having the the arrangements that the guitars had and even him as a, a bass player is terribly underrated i think as a bass player he should be considered one of the best in australia of all time um just with the lines very mccartney like lines at times oh yes that, that he'd come up with yeah absolutely totally agree and and if i've i've, I've tried to, to sort of think who who's greg bass Greg's bass playing reminds you of when a sort of cross between Entwistle and McCartney is, is yeah, I totally yeah. agree. Coming back, I guess the other the other arrangement contradiction here is um, you know because we're already speaking about you know him being him writing a song saying right let's just bring things down let's just keep them simple and yet as you've already gone and said all over this album there's all these clever arrangement things and there's overload well not overload but there's uh, lots of moments of overdubs and session mens, and we get you know him, uh, we get Cheryl singing in the mid section of this song. I don't want to hear no love songs. 78 piece orchestra, girl choirs, fancy session men, multi track harmonies, conga drums, moog synthesizers, electric pop up toasters, which I think was a nice song. And the great sound effects that he makes to go along oh, with, with all those as well in the production, just a part of that that great character side to him that he had. Done from the heart, this song, and yet the irony is killing me because he's, uh, he's having the best of both worlds, though, isn't he? And also, mate, this again came out about the time that, um, back in those days, the ARIA Awards didn't exist, but the TV Week magazine the King of Pop Awards, and Greg McCainsh was winning all these awards as a songwriter about this time. So, you know, it was 
amazing how, again, life imitated art. It just kept going. I want to talk a little bit about the influence that they left. I mean, we still got you know a couple more songs that I sort of wanted to point out, and uh, I'm sure that there are favourites that you guys want to mention. But you know, I guess we're also cut for time. But uh, I, I think this is sort of like important. In your minds, what influence did the Hooks leave as their legacy? I mean, like musically in particular, lyrically, their legacy was probably left to bands like Midnight Oil, who I believe supported them on the 80s reunion tour. But uh, I guess uh, bands like Midnight Oil and Paul Kelly and Cold Chisel and countless others that show that you could use Australian references in song and not cringe. You know, the Americans and the Brits have been doing it for years, and you know we spoke about this with Jeff. But from a musical perspective, who else locally do you think was doing or, or followed up on what the hooks did or did they leave a musical legacy did other bands just sort of take right okay well you're going to different places we'll go to different places from the straight up hard rock boogie influence of the early 70s but do you think there, there are any other bands that sort of followed on musically from what the hooks did in their style yeah yeah i don't know about musically certainly taking the the cultural cringe and making places like melbourne a, a mythical place as as Michael was saying earlier, you know, it, it was just as magical as, as a New York or a Memphis or, or something like that, hearing those places mentioned in the lyrics. Um, purely in a musical sense, mm-hmm. uh, they were pretty damn unique. I don't, I don't think there's, there's too many Aussie bands have come up with the sophisticated type material that, that they have. Most of the Aussie bands are just even Cold Chisel and the like, Australian Crawl. Still very much chord strummers, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd call them, as opposed to the way that, yeah, two unique guitar parts um, and, and then some produ- a, a unique production part like a, a Fender Rhodes or a, a vibraphone being in there as well. So isn't that, isn't that incredible for a band which achieved so much popularity at the time that it, it seems to have been look with at it. maybe the general public but not necessarily followed on with uh, the musicianship? Oh, I think... Because of that, that pub rock sound. Um, yeah. Certainly, then came in and took over from yeah the the, the late seventies that that cold chisel and and Richard Clapton and the like type sound that and, and all I can go off is watching countdown repeats that that show on on Rage every summer so it's probably yes. something left to you to you two boys who were were sort of more there at the time. Michael, I, I think the interesting thing is you you see you know so many interviews with guys that are, are around now you know Australian bands now that will cite Skyhooks as and especially Greg McCainsh as an influence, not not necessarily musically, but lyrically, as as you guys sort of alluded to, it was suddenly okay to um, to write songs about Australia, and 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 that's and that really I really noticed that with, and I hate to make a Sherbet reference, but when Garth Porter sort of took the reins up in the the early eighties, and he got the group of people around him that that took all these Australian country artists. And, and started recording them with a rock band and, you know, Lee Koenigan and all those guys. Like, I hate the country music and I, I still don't like American country music very much, but they, they gave it a credibility and they could write about Australia that wasn't riding your horse out in the outback sort of rubbish. And, and they turned that around. And, and that's a real thing that's, that Greg McCain sort of started in a, in a rock band. Yeah, I guess uh, Straight in the Gay Gay World certainly has uh, quite a fair bit of country influence on in it, doesn't it? Musically, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it starts here with all my friends are getting married too as a, a yes. lighter country style feel, especially when you got that intro that... 
that's that's straight country. Yeah. But what I'm talking Nick about right is, there. is taking that cultural cringe away. Yes is, is, yes, is giving it a credibility, not so much musically, but but just being able to to take those things and and make it Australian without without making you want to throw up when you listen to it. And it's yeah, it's and and only dawned on me sort of recently that that to, that those comparisons were there. But but also Skyhooks changed things, and there's still not many bands that do it. And and much as I love ACDC. When you go and see ACDC, how much witty banter do you get between the two? <laughs> Nothing. And 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 that was that was a Skyhooks concert for me. I didn't go to hear the tunes. I went to hear Red and Sherl because they were fantastic. They they could have played one tune all night and just and just you know yak to the audience, and I would have <laughs> I would have loved every second of it. They were fantastic. Musically, do you think that? I mean, I guess they weren't like a, a band that, to be influenced because they were, but they they were their contemporaries. But do you think that Split Ends were trying to do a similar sort of thing to uh, Skyhooks? Split ends, um, although they were, you know, very different. And, they, and there were times when, when Split ends first came to Australia that they, they were on the bill with ACDC, Skyhooks, and Split ends. Do you do you think that would ever happen now with bands that different? No. And that was that was no, that was the great thing about them. They would put bands on together that were so different. But it, um, again, was, Split ends weren't weren't they fantastic to watch? Like same thing. Oh, there was um, there was a lady who went and put a post up on the Skyhooks fan page, uh, Facebook page, when I posted up about Love That Album 77 coming out, and she mentioned that she did see Split Ends and Skyhooks on the same double bill. Uh, well, Split Ends were the support act, and you know, I made the comment, I said, I, I don't imagine that Split Ends went down very well with the Skyhooks crowd, and she uh, said, no, they did not. And yet, looking back, you know, 40 years later, you sort of wonder why, because uh, at least from a visual perspective, both bands were trying to do something different from you know, what you already said, Reese, about you know the blue jeans crowd, and they were you know they both believed in theatrics. They both wore costumes. They weren't just doing the same sort of uh, blues and boogie influence that a lot of the other bands were doing at the time. I think Split Ends sort of started off more as an art rock band before they sort of went a bit more zany and then more poppy, but still their musical chops were beyond reproach in those early days and they were trying to do something visually different so looking back now i guess skyhooks and split ends actually sort of like do look like a, a, a good pairing for the time and for the, for the excellence in songwriting that both of them pursued um i, I think is the link there and sound wise that yeah they they weren't too far apart Mm. as well so but, um, all credit to michael gudinski for uh for uh, you know having both bands on the label could have all been all too easy to just sort of pursue what festival and i guess other labels were doing at the time but uh, he decided he'd uh, take a bit of a chance on the bands like yes. that especially with split ends which sort of like had five albums before they had a hit yeah and that's when they did pare the songs down mm. a little bit and um be a bit more straight ahead with the the pop style right. Uh, as opposed to the, they, they didn't have too many, you know, seven, eight minute sweeping epics, <laughs> but they, they were just quirky. Yes, exactly. 
which is why I think that they're and a, a good not just link. lyrically, yeah, m- musically quirky as well. Uh, different time signature changes and things like that for sure. Yes. Um, look, I want to go to uh, a song on the album, which I know that you've gone and prepared something uh, to play us a bit, Reese. And this is, funnily enough, my favourite song off uh, Ego's Not a Dirty Word, and it's the Red Simons contribution, Every Chaser Steeple. <laughs> from uh, Living in the 70s, uh, Red's contribution uh, to the album is less about trying to raise eyebrows for its own sake, but having said that, it wouldn't be Red if he wasn't going to be giving the finger to the establishment. And lyrically, it's uh, it's about sort of pointing out that, you know, we've all fallen into a pattern of born, go to school, work, die, and, you know, how it's all, you know, it's all bullshit. But musically, and I, I think what... What is interesting about this is we have a song that's in 3-4 time that doesn't sound like a waltz. And I think it might be due to the way the riff is played with, with the extra the extra quaver. Yeah, it's but, quite heavy. But it's, it's not it doing... It's 3-4, but it doesn't sound like a waltz. Yeah, it's not doing that typical tricky riff to play as well that, that's the thing about a lot of these songs is they aren't the easiest riffs in the world to 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 try and play and they do them at, at speed yes too and that's that's the case in so many songs um so this one and there's also two or three different riffs happening at once like the opening riff is just and then a second riff comes over the top of that, which is playing something slightly different. Ah. There you go. See, I told you it wasn't easy <laughs> to do. <laughs> but, uh, 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 a wonderful try. There we go. Yes. Get those fingers working on. And both those riffs take place at the same time. Um, Greg's bass line is, is sort of doubling that first. Riff, um, as well as some chords going on as well, which wasn't just the case for this song. There was usually three to four different guitar parts going on. So if they were to play this live, they'd, they'd have to be selective mm. um, as to which parts were the most important to to keep the song, you know, strong on a, on a live stage. Yes. Mm. Yeah, and and I agree, guys. This is musically, this is one of my favourite tunes on the album, and and I only recall the band playing it live once. They did a they did a warm up gig for that the the gig Reese that we talked about that was on Hey Eight Saturday. Bongo Star owned a uh, a club uh, at the time in '84, and and the guys played a warm up gig the night before. That was in, that played, was in, uh, that was in Collingwood, the club. Yeah, and they played they played it they played it there, but they didn't play it. Uh, on the Hey 8 Sunday gig and I'm, I'm not aware that they ever played it any other time 
Mm. I could understand why, because it's it's damn complicated <laughs> to try and play. Even those chorus, uh, we were talking about smart-ass songwriters before. In in the chorus, they've got the the major nine chord going, which is that's a heavy jazz chord for for the non-musos out there. Most tunes straight out majors. If you want to sound a little bit jazzy, um, pop guys would throw in major sevens. But once you're hitting the major nines, it, it's getting quite complex, and you've just got that string of uh, major nines that are in that chorus. That but they still end with a nice major, straight out big, big yeah. E chord that guitar players love. Thanks for playing that. I was actually going to ask you to go through that chord sequence, Reese. Yeah, it's just a, a, that series of major nines and a very jazz thing to do as well, um, playing them uh, in, in fifths apart, uh, which for your music theory people out there go nuts on that one. <laughs> and it's probably worth, really well worth noting as well that um, about uh, Sherl's vocals on that because, you know, normally we see him as the archetype pub singer uh, a, a rock band singer and yet uh, the fact that he's able to sort of accommodate on that beautiful jazz series those jazz chords he's able to sort of sing over that like that i mean he's not a jazz singer per se but he really goes with it beautifully i think and also if if they were well the problem they faced with playing a lot of the songs live as well is which vocal line to pick um, because there is so many right. harmonies that, that come into their songs that Sherl would sometimes sing the harmony line yep. as well as you know sw- well, switching between the, the main melody line and going into a harmony line mm. as well, that he was you know clever in a sense the way, the way that he'd, he'd pull it off on a live stage. Mm. And I just wanted to mention Every Chase of Steeplewood and one of my two favourite tunes on the album uh, are that and Private Eye, and much to my disgust, they were the two that were left off <laughs> the international release of the album, which you know I think is a bit sad for people in the, around the world at the time. Maybe now they have, but didn't get to hear those two great songs. <laughs> about your love for Private Eye because I've got to confess that that for me the album ends at every chase of steeple I've never been a fan of yeah Private same Eye. here so, so, okay, so I, tell, tell us about your love for it I'm, I'm interested to know uh, what appeals I guess part of it is for me and and you'll have to YouTube it and it was a very weird thing to do they made a film clip for that song but, oh really and it was, was made at, yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, yep, it, yep. it was made at Luna Park and it's if, if you remember the the film clip for horror movie, the Lunar Park sequences for that, it's sort of got that feel about it. So they're all dressed up in trench coats and, and they're all popping out of rubbish bins. And it's just a, a fantastic film clip. And it reminds me of, you know, the old Beatles 
film clips of the old Beatles movies. It was just, you know, they're just having a lot of fun with it. And it's, I guess it's a, lyrically it's a bit of a throwaway song, but live it was a great song. And, and it's also one of those tunes that goes back. There's a there's a version kicking around from uh, from GTK, from the ABC, mm-hmm. with Steve Hill. And it's, again, it's an old song, but Cheryl just takes it to another level. And I, I guess, too, the, the album got flogged so much on the radio and I listened to it so much maybe they're the two songs that I didn't listen to over and over again at the time and they've sort of stayed it does feel like a little bit of filler just in the the thrown together sense I think that's all it's a bit all over the place compared to the the meticulous nature of some of the other tunes and it's just got that Batman riff about it too that I, I I don't actually have a problem with the Batman riff but I think the the lead riff line to da 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 it just doesn't it doesn't have the imagination that seems to have gone into every other song on the song it really sounds like oh we've got three minutes left on the album oh, what can we knock off and it sounds like a, a very quick knockoff which I mean, look it's not a it's not an atrocious or a horrible song but it just it, it's the weak link it's a little bit like hey what's the matter off living in the 70s I think another thing against it, it was the it's the backing music to the the right there on my DVD menu. Um, so many times I, I'd fall asleep after a gig, I'd fall asleep with that on, and you you just sort of casually wake up and hear that that ten second loop oh, no, uh, going over and over again of, of that riff, and and you're just too lazy to reach across and grab the remote, you know, not compass enough yet so you hear that for two or three minutes until you finally you know muster up the courage to reach across and grab the remote and 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 hit stop on the dvd yeah um yeah. so great dvd menu music though that 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 little sequence of it it's it, it's really cool cool musically but a, a bit patchwork and I, I think a bit too thrown together yeah go and check out the film clip it's a beautiful thing i will definitely be doing that look I know you've got limited time left, Reese. so I think probably just one more song I want to point out reference to. And we sort of, There's a whole stack of stuff that we still haven't spoken about in regard to this album, but one song that I really don't think we can get away without discussing a bit is Love's Not Good Enough. I'd like to be in love, but love's not good enough. Good enough, a reason. To be in love these days There's too much going on There's too much that's going wrong Going wrong to be in love these days This was very strange. I guess I already gone and said that I thought that uh, all my friends are getting married was a, a strange choice for a single, but "Love's Not Good Enough" is a song that is a long way away from I think anything that the Hooks did on the first album, or really even most places on on this album. There, a lot of what they did was you know about being cheeky or or taking the piss, and "Love's Not Good Enough." has them going in a really very very serious vein it's it, it starts off a whole lot more gentle it's not uh it, it it's not fast you, you already said reese a lot of um, what made this stuff difficult to play was that it was fast and this song 
starts off very slow. It has a bit of a, uh, a reggae a reggae uh, lilt or, or feel when the, the keyboards come in and it's got Greg McCainch's great bass part but what sets this apart I think from a lot of the other songs as well is the lyrical themes here you know with they're going very very serious you know I'd like to be in love but love's not good enough a reason to be in love these days and whoa you know can you imagine that the the teenage kids are sort of be scratching their heads over that one that's you know their older brother or older sister they're, they're you know it sounds about disenchantment and then there's the observational part of the the verses where they're they're sort of like looking at you know people in the bars you imagine greg mccain spent a lot of time in in bars uh or was it steve hill Oh no no, that was uh, "Love's on the Ra- um, Love on the Radio" that he wrote the words for. This is all Greg McCain, isn't it? But you, you imagine they spent a lot of time in the bars, or maybe just like observing uh, their audience when they were playing in the pubs uh, and the interrelationship. It, it, it's just really sharp, very lyrically observant of, uh, of other people. The games that men and women play when they're flirting or, or they're in a relationship and they take each other for granted. Yeah, um, just the way that the whole song builds, as well, that it, it really tells that that story well i also i, I think the, that it sort of it, it, it bubbles it builds there's a tension there and then when it gets to you wouldn't exactly call it a bridge but that that separate section towards the end where it sounds like it's a a couple who've finally reached exploding point they've, they've gone through the flirtation stage and then they're they're at the stage where they're accusing each other of you're spying on me you're jealousy you're trying to possess me and it just explodes yeah, it's it's a bit violent yeah yes. yeah it's, it's and the, the solo as well that that is played in there is, is a fairly aggressive solo mm. as well. I mean, it's, that's probably just the, as aggressive the warped, as they get. The warped chords that that follow that as well support that again. That it's and then this one's the unusual one that yes. that almost doesn't belong in there. That that supports that twisted idea. And I agree. You, you're the, the you're the lyric guy again, Morris. I, musically, this song I love. Mu- that's what I love about it. it. The way it builds and, and the guy's guitar playing in that, that end section and Shul's vocals in that end section are just, you know, so high and just out of this world. And I, there's a, I think you mentioned it with, uh, when you were talking to Jeff, there's a, the ABC made a doco when they're recording this and it's, you, again, YouTube it. It's fascinating. Yeah, I have watched it. It is all on YouTube. That's right. Yeah, it's really good. And, and interesting, like, as an example, the, the, the introductory guitar parts, live they must have played it and i can't really remember but they must have played it quite a bit more in those in those parts at the start and ross wilson's going through and no you know saying you know keep it minimalistic keep it as as basic as you can so it gives you somewhere to go and it, it really for me is a it really shows how much what a great producer ross wilson was and how he he could sort of see that and take a a tune that he knew live and and do something else with it and it's a shame that he didn't go on and do a lot more production because he you know it's a great example of how good a producer ross wilson well still is i guess so so what what else i mean besides like his own projects has ross wilson done any other uh, production work besides the hooks i think he's done some stuff for so like lesson i think he did some really stuff with, with maybe the sports and and from some guys like that but like i'm not yeah, certainly nothing nothing that's really made an impact. Uh, Ross Wilson fans <laughs> write in and tell us, so I'm not really sure. The production thing, I think, came up because, it, well, at the time, rock and roll wasn't an, an old man's game, as in you hit your 30s and, and that's sort of it. So I believe that, that after Daddy Cool, that was the next thing that he thought would 
is is where you go mm. with, in your your music career. Um, but then thankfully jumped back on stage and got Mondo Rock happening and right. and created some great music with them. Oh, look, lightning striking twice! You know how how great. I mean, he, he'd been in several bands, but to have two iconic bands like. Uh, Daddy Cool and, and Mondo Rock. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, and there, there, there's a band worth a, a love. This album episode as well. I well, I think I'll, I'll book you for a discussion of chemistry. I know that you know you were at the uh, Palais Theatre when they. Uh, slight digression, I guess, but you were at the Palais Theatre when they uh, did the Chemistry show last year, weren't you? Yes, wouldn't have missed it. I uh, love that album. That that was one of the ones that was in Dad's LP collection, right. and uh, played the hell out of that. Now, I didn't get round to that Palais Theatre show, but I did get to see them play uh, at uh, Basement Discs in the city when the Chemistry CD got, you know, the remaster got uh, released last year, and it was just absolutely fantastic. And I think we might have just spoken about this, apart from them doing uh, the one non-Chemistry track, Come Said the Boy, which I really can do without in my life. But everything else that they played was was absolutely fantastic, and I still just marvel at how such a great song, and I know this is Eric McCusker, but you know how such a great song like uh, A State of the Heart exists. Absolutely beautiful, and um, Ross Wilson's vocal approach on that is just awesome. But we'll, we'll do a love that album to uh, discuss that in greater detail. Excellent. Um, all right, so I know that you've got very limited time, Reese. so uh, look, just any final thoughts about ego's not a dirty word um from either of you reese you first um yeah I, it's very much you, you've got throughout music history a couple of times where bands have got albums that are, are, are very close brothers almost to a, each other like the the beatles rubber soul and revolver that's exactly what living in the 70s and ego were right um and they never quite got back there again mm. i don't think Yep. Um, and I think it was because, yeah, chasing that international dream of um, making it overseas. I think some of the humour left the music. Um, but I mean, yeah, look, they, as, they as, never as, got back to this level again. I don't think. But you see, as, as Jeff went and said in the last episode, that they they gave the international dream a try, and and certainly Straight in the Gay Gay World was recorded in America. But it seems like when they saw what they had to do to achieve that international status, they basically thought. Nah, can't be bothered. Well, certainly red. Yeah, I think that's that. Yeah. That was oh, one maybe, of the factors oh, the as well. Um, on on him leaving the band. Uh-huh. Uh But yeah, it, it just tainted the music a little bit. I think mm. as well that they they were a little less true to themselves. Maybe. I guess like albums like uh, um, Guilty Until Proven Insane has less of that initial feel that the first two albums did yeah and that, that that could have been a great album i think with the the tracks that got left off um that were around at the time like sitting in a bar in adelaide was there and a couple of others that that make it on the live be in it mm. album um that would have been much better i i think than a, a couple of the songs that ended up on guilty guilty is a, a half great album Mm. I think that that could have been really good if if some of those other songs got left off and maybe it was in favour of of um, trying to get international acclaim. Mm. And another so maybe a good excuse to do this again, Jim. Indeed. I I just wanted to just sort of quickly mention and I know you did touch on it with Jeff, mate. The the international releases of Ego is not a dirty word because it, you know for an Australian album. Album to get an international distribution deal, which basically was what it was, is a huge thing. Like it didn't happen. Um, Living right. in the 70s got released nowhere in New Zealand, maybe. Um, and Ego is not a dirty word. Got released in every major rock um, market in the world, and that's a, that's a huge thing. The 
Um, you know, the album was changed a little bit with, with Horror Movie and You Just Like Me Because I'm Good In Bed, thrown on the end instead of uh, the last two tunes. But, um, yeah, they're so, unfortunately, as I said, it didn't take off, but there were, a spe- and I can't remember his name, and, and people will, uh, well, I'm sure will, will let us know. There was a, a DJ in, in Jacksonville, Florida, that really, he picked up on... The, I, I can't remember the name, but Jeff mentioned him, I think, in the yeah, last Yeah, and he yeah. picked up on... Skyhooks and the Little River Band and ACDC, and he was so influential. And the the bands that got that he played there on his radio station in in that town were huge in that part of America. So it was only because people's ears didn't prick up. And there's a great story about Skyhooks supporting Uriah Heep in Jacksonville and um, in '76. And most of the audience went to see Skyhooks. They were all singing along to the songs. And again, like you know, like my Skyhooks and Sherbet experience, when your eye heat came on, half of them went home. So <laughs> the potential was there. It's, and 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 Reese and you guys, you know, said that oh, I think it was just the the band sort of hit them hard. How hard it was to to go and tour relentlessly in the states, like ACDC and the Little Room Band did, to sort of capitalise on that. And in hindsight, who knows what would have happened. Mm. All right. Well, um, thank you very much, gentlemen. Uh, this has been uh, a, a wonderful conversation about an iconic album, and I'm hoping that anyone who uh, listens to this podcast outside of Australia, or even anyone who is in Australia but is maybe too young to remember what all the fuss was about, goes out and searches out for uh, a copy of Ego is Not a Dirty Word. It is certainly worth your time, as you'll have uh, as we will attest to. Uh, so um, just very briefly, Michael, sitting in a bar in Adelaide, how do people find your excellent podcast? I'll do the Google thing. I'm, I'm, um, I'm not, that, uh, not that savvy. I'm, not, I'm having my list ready of everywhere to find it. But uh, You're still not on iTunes, are you? And we're also on um, Community Radio here in Adelaide, which you can stream. Hills Radio 88.9 FM, so you can find it with that as well. But Excellent. It's, it's out there somewhere. It looks like Reese has left the conversation, but if you wish to search out Reese and uh, his uh, instructional videos on Skyhook songs, I'll be posting links up to them uh, on the Love That Album Facebook page and in the blog. And if you wish to get music lessons, then go uh, and search out Reese's school, the Eastern Suburbs School of Music. You can check out the school's website at essm.net.au. And he physically has schools in the suburbs of Carrum Downs and in Baronia for any number of instruments that you may want to learn. But go check out that website as a starting place. It's really fantastic, full of all sorts of resources. And I think you'll uh, want to go and further on your musical ambitions once you get the inspiration from what Reese has gone and done with his school and with the website. Thank you very much, Michael. You're the one who's still left. And thank you, Reese, even though you can't hear us for uh, coming and discussing Skyhooks. I know that Reese has had other things to do this uh, this morning, so my appreciation to him for his time and my appreciation to you, Michael, for yours. Great pleasure, mate. And it was great to have Reese play some guitar on those on those tunes. And, and a note to Greg McCainish and a note to the Skyhooks group that you were talking about on Facebook. I had a chat with him many years ago when every Australian band was making unplugged acoustic albums and I said come on you should be thinking about doing that and he said to me Skyhook songs will not work on an acoustic guitar and they do and they would and imagine how great some of those songs would be to come up so uh, get on the internet people and make it happen contact Greg you've got the contact to Greg and tell him <laughs> tell him he's got to listen to uh, what Reese has done today 
Absolutely. And there's some great singers like Laura Davidson that's playing with Bob Starkey. She can sing those songs with her eyes closed. And Lisa Edwards from Farnham's Band has done it. This And most of the people that can sing them are ladies, by the way. Mm. But, um, yeah, there's plenty of people that can sing. Right, right. All right, so next month for Love That Album, uh, I'm going to be doing a bit of a... Uh, uh, well, I, I don't want. I'm, I'm loath to use the word lazy thing, but I'm not going to be producing uh, necessarily new shows next month. Uh, a little bit of a busy month, but what I am going to do is I'm digging up into the archives. And years and years ago, I used to be on community radio station here in Melbourne, and I did back in 2001 interviews with Marshall Crenshaw, song, great songwriter and great jazz guitar player Bill Frisell. So what I think I might do is uh, edit those shows together and make them into Love That Album uh, specials. I've always wanted to sort of represent those shows for your listening pleasure. I'm rather proud of those interviews and having the opportunity to speak to uh, two musical heroes of mine. So um, I'll be basically putting those up in uh, August as two Love That Album specials. And of course, Eric will be back doing his uh, compilation edition of the show in August, so there'll still be plenty of Love That Album contact in uh, contact content in August for you to uh, dig on. Hope you do. Please spread the word about the show. I'd love uh, anyone who potentially loves to hear music talk uh, to uh, get in contact and uh, listen to the program. And if you want to send me an email, you can do so at rrrkitchen at yahoo.com.au. All right, I think we're out of here. Thanks very much, Michael, for your time, and thanks very much, Reese, even though you're not here. Cheers, bro. Be nice and listen to lots of music and read lots of books and watch lots of films. And uh, we'll speak to you in August. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.